Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 9th, we're studying Proverbs chapter 24, verses 23 through 34. Solomon gives another compilation of sayings of the wise, dealing with topics like courtroom conduct, wise and foolish speech, and diligent labor. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Great to be with you again. As we get started this morning, Pastor Andrews, we're here at the end of chapter 24 in the book of Proverbs. We've seen lots of wisdom in this book, going all the way back to chapter 10, particularly all these sayings of wisdom. We're in a section here where Solomon is probably more of a compiler and an editor rather than an author, but it still goes back to him, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just think about this section and Proverbs as a whole. What do we need to know going in that'll help us into the text we've got for today? Probably just the the simple understanding that so many of these things are are just nice little nuggets of of truth, nuggets of wisdom to consider, uh, things to just kind of chew on. So as you're you're studying God's word, uh, Proverbs gives you short sections that you can chew on. Oftentimes, um, rather than needing to necessarily know a book contextually from cover to cover, Proverbs just works a little differently. It's easier to take in smaller parts like we are today. Mm. Now, one of, one of our previous guests, I think, made the point that, generally speaking, your pastor is going to tell you not to take verses of the Scripture out of context. You don't want to just read one verse all by itself, and that's the only thing that you're going to read and try to understand it apart from what's around it. With the book of Proverbs, that's a bit different. You can start to take just one verse, chew on it, meditate upon it all by itself. Now, you can't take it out of the full context of Scripture. You, you need to know where, where it lies in Scripture, what it is as wisdom literature, that it's doing something different than a narrative is doing or than an epistle is doing. You have to know that full context, or you're going to be left with just moralism, just basic advice for life. You won't get the fullness of what wisdom is in the fear of the Lord. But the book of Proverbs does allow us to take one or two verses at a time and to really meditate upon them, even if we don't know what's right before it or right after it. And it's been it's been something that, as I've gone through this study, has been refreshing to do, just to recognize what sort of literature it is and to dwell on topics that otherwise I, I might not have dwelt on. And so it, it's, it is a really a nice book full of, of these sayings of wisdom that give us very practical things to, to chew on, to meditate upon, and, and to converse about as, as we will do today. So Proverbs 24, verses 23 through 34 is our section for today, Pastor Andrews. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole section for us. It is a bit shorter than some of the other sections we've tackled here on Sharper Iron. 
read it now and, and we'll revisit it verse by verse, as we were saying. Proverbs 24, 23. These also are sayings of the wise. Partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that build your house. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. and Poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. And that is our text for today, Proverbs 24, verses 23 through 34. So, Pastor Andrews, we'll start there at the very beginning of this section. These also are sayings of the wise. This is one of those introductory tiles that we've seen occasionally for Solomon. As I mentioned in the introduction, I think... Generally speaking, most would recognize this as a section that Solomon compiled or edited from other sources, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, putting it together into the book of Proverbs so that it's not without that context. But this is probably one of the sections that he's an editor of. And he starts, so feel free to comment on that if you want, or take us right in, partiality in judging is not good. Yeah, you could easily break 23 up into two separate verses in that way. So just yeah, a quick thought on that introduction and, and the idea that this is a collection, but still inspired by the Holy Spirit. This idea of wisdom in the Scripture, I think it would be safe to attest this to the idea that these sayings of the wise are something Solomon's probably collecting from others who are believers in the Lord. Uh, and so that that idea of, of wisdom and foolishness in Scripture often being a reference to one's one's faith and one's trust in the Lord. And so you have the Holy Spirit then working through His Church, working through His people, and that these particular sayings that we're talking about today are then coming out of, of the collection of the wisdom of the elders of Israel. Yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely got a lot of of wisdom that he is drawing from. We've we've seen in other sections where there may be similarities to secular sources, and we've even made the point that you can see within the Book of Proverbs wisdom that sounds a lot like something Benjamin Franklin might have written, or something you might have read in Aesop's Fables, that there are parts of the book of Proverbs where the wisdom that Solomon writes matches up with those with wisdom that is given by those who are not Christians. And, and we've noticed that this should make sense to us because the Lord has designed the world to work a certain way. And we shouldn't be surprised that even a non-Christian can make those kinds of observations about the way the world works. But what sets off the book of Proverbs as unique is that introduction that you get in chapter 1, a theme that repeats itself throughout the book, which is the fear of the Lord. 
What makes Proverbs a uniquely Christian book is that it is centered in the fear of the Lord. It's not just moralistic platitudes. It's not just observations about the way the world works, but it is centered in a right recognition of who the Lord is, of who I am, and how I stand in relationship to him as a sinner whom he forgives in his son, Jesus Christ. With that in mind, then, take us into the first topic. Partiality in judging is not good. That's how Solomon introduces it in verse 23. He gives a couple of examples in 24 and 25, but just let's start with that simple statement. Partiality in judging is not good. Perhaps the first question we should answer is, well, what kind of judging does Solomon have in mind here? Which is a good question to be asking. And there are some hints, perhaps, in the verses to come, but when you consider the phrase in general and just think of any of the kinds of judgments that we read about in Scripture, the phrase actually does work for each of them. So if you think of of God's judgment, uh, his righteous judgment upon the world, if God were to show partiality, if he were to show favoritism as he judges, that would not be of, of benefit to to sinners. Um, you know, I think of myself, a wretched sinner that I am. Um, who would God show his favoritism to? And I think the only thing that we would probably find a hint towards in Scripture in that would be the idea of his chosen nation of Israel from the Old Testament. But Paul and Peter both very specifically in the New Testament, whether it's Romans 2 or Acts 10, point out that God doesn't show that favoritism in his judgment, that he has given Christ to be the Savior for for all people. And so that is a good thing, that God does not have that favoritism in judging. Uh, if we take it to the courtroom idea, you know, we, we can see this, we know this, and I think our culture uh, right now is very much so interested in this particular kind of judging and justice. It's not good if your judge or your jury is going to simply side with a person because of the person rather than actually taking into account everything that's happened, all the evidence, all the events, what's transpired. If they've already made up their mind before it's happened, then that's not helpful. That doesn't serve uh, the people that they are, are to be serving. We could take it to the idea of, of judging that is perhaps um, how we view our neighbor. So, you know, you've got neighbors that are rich, you have neighbors that are poor. Are we showing favoritism to one or the other? And Scripture certainly calls us not to do that. Um, if we do, uh, we are despising the one and we end up not wanting to share share the gifts with them, the, the good news of the gospel that God would have for them as well. Uh, a fourth kind of judging I think you can see also in Scripture is just to take it simply as to discern. We are called as Christians to be able to discern between good and evil, to judge between right and wrong. And if we try to show partiality there, our sinful nature is just going to have a lot of fun, um, allowing it to... to I, we usually talk about self-justifying, um, trying to cover over our sins and say that they're not as bad or they're not sins at all. So on a more generic level with this introductory verse, you could take that judging in, in so many ways scripturally, and the statement holds true for all of them. Mm -hmm. 
but as you were saying, uh, perhaps here Solomon does have something more specific, one of the one of those more pointedly in his mind as he's penning these words. Hmm. Now, I, I think I think you're right that that all of those are types of judging that we see in the scriptures in which partiality would not be good. And I, I do think that he's probably got in mind more of the courtroom scene, and we'll talk about that. But I don't think that we can throw out any of those others, and I think those others come to bear as we think about the courtroom scene. And, and just before we start looking at perhaps the courtroom scene that Solomon has in mind in verses 24 and 25, let's just consider the matter of God's judgment and his lack of partiality there. You, you brought up the fact that you, you've got God with his chosen people, he calls them his chosen people, in the, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. Is this partiality on God's part? He certainly gives to his people good things. He gives them his word that perhaps he did not, well, he did not give it in the same way. The, the Ten Commandments were not received by, say, Assyria in the way that they were received in Israel. And yet, why did he give his word to Israel? Why did he give his law? It wasn't so that only Israel would have it, but he gave it to Israel for the sake of the nations. And similarly, with his church now, his, his church is his chosen people. This is the language that the New Testament uses. It, it adopts the language used of Israel in the Old for the church in the New. So the church, believers in Christ, are the fulfillment of Israel. The church is his chosen people. He gives his word to his church. Is it only for the sake of the church with that kind of partiality? No. <laughs> He's giving his word to his church so that it it can go out to the nations for the sake of all. And so I, I think that I think that's important to recognize that God in his judgment does not show partiality because that then be, becomes the foundation for the judgment that he's going to talk about because God in his judgment is not partial. He's not a, a respecter of persons is a, another way that the, the scriptures will talk about this. Because of that then, it flows into this wisdom in the way that, that you and I would treat others within our judgment, particularly in the matter of, of a courtroom, as we will see. Any, any more thoughts on the matter of, of God's judgment as that foundation, Pastor Andrews? I think you were phrasing that very well. I mean, you think of, of the very idea that God would take Israel and, as we would say with that word holy, we would call set apart. It's mm-hmm. another way we talk about that. So God set them apart not even just set them apart so that they'd be, you know, hidden and out of the way, but so that they would be a witness of his his love. They would be a witness of what he has done for his people to all those around him. And you can very specifically see Scripture speak that way, of whether it's Exodus chapter 7 of the plagues, or if it's the book of Isaiah, where we're hearing about the Messiah who would come, and he is, it is too light a thing, too little a thing for him to just save Israel, but that rather he will be for Israel, but also like for the, the Gentiles, the nations. And that theme just flows throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, that God's work through his people is not just for the people he does it for, but it is also for the benefit of witnessing of, of who he is and his love for his creation to the rest of his creation. So I appreciate the way you were putting that. So verses 24 and 25 start to take us into the matter of not showing partiality, 
as being something that is good and the way that it plays out. So I'm going to reread verses 24 and 25 for us. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. And and in your notes that you sent me, Pastor Andrews, you, you said, this doesn't necessarily seem to be the way things actually are as we experience in, in life. What what do you mean by that? Well, I think you would have many Christians, many different generations of Christians and different eras of the history of the Church who would see this text and say, wait a second, that's, just, that's not how this is working for me. Um, as you think of even, for example, the New Testament, the Christians who were persecuted by the Roman Empire, if they said the thing that was right uh, to the wicked, they got in trouble for it. And I, we're seeing that as our culture shifts here in, in the American context as well. For the Christian who starts to speak the words that God has spoken, the things that we know to be true, the world around us hates it. They they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear essentially that they are sinful and that they need to repent of their sins, and so they fight back. And that, that fighting back is is causing some harm to people. So I think a lot of people would see these words, hear these words, and I don't want to say they'd be stumbling over them, but just confused by them. So, so how do we hold on to the truth that Solomon gives us in these words if it doesn't always seem to match with what we see in life? So it may not be the way we see it necessarily play out on a day-to-day basis in every era of history. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a design to God's creation, that he hasn't still ordered things to work, as you were uh, mentioning earlier, uh, the Ten Commandments that God has given to us. We, we have those. We see those. They're, they're written on our hearts. And so as God wrote that law upon our hearts, many would call that our conscience today, that law of God, the, the way that he has designed the world to function, it would naturally lead to a result like this. Um, that if we, if we point out something that is dark and we call it good, the natural law, the, the, the conscience of the person should be able to look at that and say, that's, that's not true. What you're calling good, that's, that's not good. That's actually evil. Um, I think we, we have seen that, and I don't know that there's any reason to think that even in times of, of persecution that there won't still be at least some of that that happens, that God's natural law written upon our hearts just has that way of peeking through even in, even in times of darkness. Mm. I, th- I think you're right, that, that the truth of this proverb does peek out in times of darkness. I think that's a good way of, of saying it, that we, we're never completely absent of the reality of this proverb, that when wickedness is exposed, that there are those who rejoice, or when wickedness is praised, there are those who, who mourn and lament and, and try to do something about it. I think and so you tell me what you think of this. I was reflecting on this as, as we were talking about it and what you sent me ahead of time, too. I think the general truth of this proverb is always true, but what what isn't always true is whether or not P- 
people actually recognize what's really right and what's really wrong, or what's really good and what's really evil. And this this goes to what you were laying out at the very beginning, the matter of needing to be able to judge between what is right and what is wrong, what is God-pleasing and what is not. This is inherent in the matter of judgment. And when we don't get that right, then this gets messed up. But I, I think you still see it happen. So again, to verse 24, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by people, abhorred by the nations. I think what we what we're experiencing in our world right now is that this happens, but the definition of what is wicked and what is right is backwards. And so the the people who are who are getting up people are getting upset at those who are trying to at, at Christians who are trying to say this is what is right and this is what is wrong according to God's word. You see people getting upset at that because they they have this idea of justice in their minds. They know that there should be some kind of justice, but they've got it backwards as to what is right and what is wrong. So just to to use the example of, of perhaps abortion, that, that in our world today, there are those who are convinced that abortion should be a, a right of a woman. It should be the right of a woman to be able to legally kill the child that is growing in her womb. And so Christians naturally come along and say, no, this is not good. That is a life. That is a human being growing inside of his mother. That human being should be protected. Now, for us as Christians, we understand from God's word that what we've just spoken is is good and right. And and if if everything is, is going correctly, that should be praised, as you're saying. It's not praised by those who have the definition backwards. And, and so what happens is those who have the definition backwards hear the words of the Christian and think that we are doing injustice when in fact we're doing justice. So I think, and hopefully I have, maybe I'm talking myself in circles, Pastor Andrews, you, you, can, you can help me clarify this. I think the reality of this proverb is true, that when someone sees injustice, they cry out about it. The question is whether or not the person who's doing the crying out really has what is good and right in mind, or whether their definitions are flipped. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hadn't considered the verse in that way before, essentially taking a step back and and just looking at it, not necessarily grounded in, in God's truth, but in the, in the truth of the individual, which is very much an American way of thinking of him. <laughs> I am an American, but, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, and in 21st century, so, but the idea that, you know, those who are agreeing to something that I view as evil would be cursed. I can see that. Um, well, and, and so and my my point, I don't mean to interrupt you, but my my point is is not that those who who would get up like get upset at the wrong thing, not that they're in the right, but you see the larger principle that Solomon's got playing out, and and. But it's being wrongly applied, I guess, is is my point. That that generally speaking, and this I think goes to what you were saying about the law writ- is written on our conscience. People know that there is a right and wrong. That's that's sort of it's built into our consciences. We we know that there is a right and there is a wrong. But it's only Christians who understand from God's word what the right is and what the wrong is in its fullest sense. 
and so for for us and this is i think where where you're coming from for us we recognize that that what is written here in 24 and 25 doesn't always happen in the correct sense but i i think that the it does you do see the crying out the the what i'm trying to hopefully draw us deeper into is part of this judgment is the matter of we need to recognize what is truly right what is truly wrong to take us that goes back to what you were saying before that's where it has to start when we don't agree on that then these results are going to be all messed up and i think the other thing that we want to see here maybe focus on in, in verse 25 those who rebuke the wicked will have delight is we're often thinking of this in a very worldly way so almost like the prosperity gospel you know if i tell my neighbor that they're sinning um God's going to bless me here and now. Uh, is only twenty-five almost could be phrased that way. You could see it that way. But you know, we do have delight as we hear of of God speaking to Ezekiel that if He warns the wicked of His way, um, then even if the wicked does not repent, Ezekiel is spared. So as we follow the Lord, as we trust in Him, as we do what He is given to do, as we try to love our neighbor and serve our neighbor. We have delight, and that delight ultimately is in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that's that's very well said. We need to understand this from the from the scriptural perspective of of what it means to have delight, and that sort of delight is not simply earthly wealth, earthly prosperity, earthly success, as we might define it as Americans. But it is the delight that comes from the law of the Lord, the delight of living in what God has given, and ultimately a delight that will be fulfilled in the resurrection. That even when, and, and I, you're right, Pastor Andrews, that these verses as Christians, we don't experience the fullness of them right now. We get these glimpses of them, as you said, but we don't experience the fullness that, that when we call out wickedness, we don't get praised, or or when we uphold what God says is righteous, we don't get praised. The the opposite happens. You're you're exactly right in that. What we need to hold on to as as Christians here is the reality that Solomon is saying. This is the way that God has designed it, and and let God bring it about in the resurrection. Look forward to that. We we always have to have that in mind. I think in the book of Proverbs that the fullness of these blessings is coming when our Lord raises us from the dead. And and on that day, what is wicked and good will be made perfectly clear, not just to us, but to all people. And, and that reality is what we hold on to now when we don't see it fully in our lives as Christians. We need to take a short break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to the study of Proverbs 24, 23 through 34 this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 9th. We're studying Proverbs chapter 24, verses 23 through 34. We've got Pastor Steve Andrews with us. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Just a reminder that if we miss something that you want to hear more about, give us a call at the listener comment line. Leave a message there, 314-996-1542. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Let us know what you want to hear more about, and I'll be recording some short bonus podcast material on those sections as you request them so that you can have your faith in Christ made sharp through the book of Proverbs. Pastor Andrews, in our discussion, we left off with verse 26, where Solomon writes, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips, which I think is related to the conversation we were having about concerning no partiality in judgment and the idea, especially when you connect to testifying in court, but it does seem that there is a bit of a, a unique thought there as well, or a, a different thought. What is Solomon saying there in verse 26? What I, what I hear there is, is the idea of relationships between, between men, as we think of, of living in this world, loving our neighbors, serving our neighbor. You know, if we think of that phrase, kissing the lips. You probably only do that with the people you're the very closest to, maybe your spouse or your or you know a grandparent or something like that. I'm not sure what to do with the the New Testament. Uh, what is it, the, the kiss of peace or whatever <laughs> the churches have? Um, Americans don't do that, right? But it's a it's a sign of a deep and a solid relationship between people uh, that we would kiss one another on the lips. And so to speak honestly with another person is to build that deep solid relationship with that person instead of lying to them which destroys a relationship honesty builds it even if it is honesty that has to be recovered from in which case then we're working through forgiveness and forgiveness always strengthens uh, and that's a wonderful blessing that can be there as well and i think the matter of honesty or truthfulness that would be something like we were saying with the matter of no partiality and judgment this would be founded upon who God is, as Jesus says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, I, Jesus is truth. All true things are from the Lord, and, and we look at the opposite as well, all the evil things, all, all lies come from the devil. Uh, so that's one of the things we often talk about in the Church today when we're teaching the commandments to our children and, and things like that in our household is, well, don't tell lies, um, because God is the God of truth. Yeah, one, once again, the, the character of who God is then goes forth into our lives as Christians. I, I'm reminded of the it's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, and the way the explanation runs is that God's name is, is holy in our lives when we learn his word and teach his word in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God lead holy lives according to it, that our identity as the children of God, which is given to us in holy baptism, becomes 
evident as we reflect the character of who our Father is in heaven. And I, I mean, you see it in both of the things we've talked about so far, the matter of partiality and judgment, that this is not who God is, and so it is not who his people are, and the matter of honesty in our speech. This is not who—God is truth, and so his people speak that truth. That That's our identity as his children flowing forth into our actions. So, and and maybe maybe that same thing is true in the next verse. I'm not sure. But, but nonetheless, this is something that we've heard Solomon talk about previously in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of hard work. He says in verse 27, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Now, this is, I mean, I think hard work is, is clearly in view here, but perhaps the picture is something that, that we need to to hold on to. We need to understand the picture so we can get at what Solomon is saying. I don't preparing my work outside, I'm, I'm not sure what, <laughs> and then building my house. These are things, at least in my reality, is, is the work that I generally do as a pastor. That's not something that, that really, the image that I'm not going to have in my mind. What What's the picture Solomon's giving us here? How does it apply to the matter of hard work? I think a good picture that many Americans may be able to recently in history have wrapped their minds or attached themselves to uh, is the old idea of, of how a barn would be built. And so you would think of a, a community coming together and they would put the frames of the barn together. They'd build all the frames of the barn. They'd all be there. They'd all be ready. And then they'd gather people together and they would lift up all the frames in time so they could attach them to, well, together, to, to each other. And there you go. You have the barn being built. Uh, barn raising, I think they call it. And there are even communities today among, say, the Amish and the Mennonites where they still do those things. Um, we don't think that way. I mean, prepare your work outside. Most of us don't work outside. But I think, you know, coming back just a step here and, and envisioning this as you don't just cut down one tree, make a couple of logs, uh, a couple of uh, a pieces of lumber from it, and start building, and then have to go back and, and cut down the next tree so you can get more to work with. Go ahead and gather all of your materials. Get yourself together. Get everything you need. Uh, today, we might more closely compare that to having a blueprint. You know, you have your architect get the project all squared away, you get all your materials, you go to work. I wonder, too, if, if part of the image, too, the idea of getting everything ready for yourself in the field from that agricultural perspective, that I mean, think about what you're going to plant as well. You know, what, what are you going to plant? What are you going to harvest? And, and is that going to be enough to sustain the house that you've built? Don't don't build a, a bigger house than what your field is going to be allow going to allow you to maintain to, to have both of those priorities in place. The larger idea at hand here, I think, and I think you said it this way, is prepare your work in advance. Is that the, the general picture that we're getting here? That's the word he chose to lead with, at least in our English Bible. Um, so prepare. Uh, yeah, be be ready, and there's some good parallels to this in the New Testament. You know, you think of Jesus talking in Luke chapter 14 about the cost of—really, it's the cost of discipleship, but he's talking in this way. He's talking about the guy who would go and build a tower, and he doesn't start the work and then get to the point where he's not going to be able to finish, because then he's just going to be mocked by everybody. But he actually figures out what does he need, and he gets it all ready to go, and then he goes ahead and he builds this tower. Um, you know, Jesus is taking that a bit of a different direction for us. This ends up being a call of the New Testament that we 
we would be willing to leave behind everything that we have in order to follow Jesus. Uh, and that actually does help with our understanding a little bit on 24 and 25 that we were working with in the first half of the show today, um, that we wouldn't really care what the world says about us, because as Christians, we know the world isn't going to like us. Jesus told us the world wouldn't like us. So I think that that cost of discipleship can be a fitting thing. I don't know that Solomon has that necessarily going on in his mind as he, he collected this proverb for us, but the New Testament connection is at least there in the, in the kind of language and the picture that they're using. Hmm. Right. I think Solomon, again, kind of like we were saying earlier, when it comes to those first couple of verses, Solomon probably has a courtroom scene in mind. Here he probably very literally has in mind the picture of a man going out into the field, planting his crops, and then building his house, and doing so in a way that he recognizes what he's going to be able to support in terms of, of himself and his family. This is something that, that another guest brought to my attention, that anytime we, we talk about building a house in the book of Proverbs, we probably shouldn't only have in mind the matter of a physical structure, but we should also have in mind the building of a family, the 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 wife and children that are that come along with it that that should all be in mind, but I, I think you know one of the one of the beauties I think of the book of Proverbs is that it does in the way that it speaks invite reflection upon one verse at a time as we were saying earlier and and in that invites us ref, to reflect upon other parts of Scripture so so Luke fourteen is the text that that you've mentioned I'm going to read a little bit for us because I, I think. I think that this is a, a, a worthy topic for us just to, to ponder a little bit as we think of the Proverbs. Luke 14, verse 28 and following, this is Jesus speaking. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And then Jesus gives another example concerning a king who might go off to war. He concludes in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's the, the matter of, of counting the cost. Pastor Andrews, as, as you think about, about how this verse, about preparing in advance, recognizing what, what's coming, so think about it in terms of Christian, Christian discipleship. What are, what are your reflections on that matter? How does this impact our lives as Christians? Well, we... One of our temptations, and probably fair to say it comes from the sinful nature's desire to just have whatever the sinful nature wants, but one of our temptations in life is to just kind of go through the motions, just go through the day, take every day as it comes. And, you know, we have this Old Testament encouragement, we get the New Testament ones as well, that we would be prepared. So even here, building your house or building your family, as you were talking about it, how, how intentional are we? about doing that? You know, do I actually go into marriage understanding what God teaches marriage is, or is it just this thing where, you know, we kind of love each other and and we're going to, that's the next step. Um, Or do we look at it as this life shared in service with the people around us or having children? Are we, you know, do we understand, again, the purpose uh, the scriptures would give us in, in raising our children? Do we do we have ourselves prepared for the uh, spiritual warfare that is all around us as the devil and the demons at, at his command are, are working against not just the church, but the individuals in the church? So the, the cost of discipleship here 
becoming a Christian, knowing that what this looks like, what this could mean for you. We mentioned the prosperity gospel in the show already, um, but we have this idea almost in our American Christian culture that, you know, you become a Christian, things are going to go better for you. We, we actually hear the opposite as you look through something like First Peter. The whole theme of that book is how it's a gift from God when you suffer. Are we prepared for that? Are we ready for that? Are, are we clinging instead to, again, the desire of our own sinful heart that things would be great and comfortable all the time? And, and in that respect, what Solomon gives us is part of that preparation. To take us back to the conversation we were having on the previous side of the break, especially surrounding verse 25, well, verse 24 and 25 both, that sometimes this is not our lived experience as Christians, and yet Solomon says this is what is true, this is what is right. And to recognize that as Christians then, we live by faith and not by sight, even when what we see or what we experience isn't precisely what God says it should be in a place like Proverbs. We hold on to the truth of his word and recognize, to go back to the end of verse 25, that the good blessing will come to those who, who have Christ, and that good blessing is ultimately the resurrection of the dead. And so to know what we're getting into ahead of time as Christians is helpful to recognize that this is what our Lord has promised. This is what life will look like for you. You will go through suffering. And yet, in preparation for that, we know that ultimately Christ will raise us from the dead no matter what suffering we go through now. And, and all of that combined, that, well, I'll say it like this, the wisdom that is there in his word, that is what prepares us for the life of a Christian so that we don't end up with this half-built house that Jesus talks about there in Luke 14. Any, any further reflection on that, Pastor Andrews, or, or can we keep moving? We can keep going. Okay, so let's 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 go a little bit farther here. What what I think happens is is Solomon almost comes back to some of these topics again. So verse twenty eight: Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. He seems to be taking us back to the courtroom, although giving us a, a bit of a different flavor in that courtroom scene. Uh, be not a witness against your neighbor without cause. It sounds a lot like the eighth commandment, Pastor Andrews. It sure does. And we would not bear false witness against our neighbor. Uh, and so uh, this is a matter of, of loving your neighbor, to speak wrongly of them, to slander them. You know, it, it's not loving. That's not what God has given us to do. Old Testament law, uh, with regard to witnesses, had some provisions for really protection against something like this happening. So you had Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, for example, we learned that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so we start to think of, we talk about the law being a curb, how it helps to keep our sinful nature in check a little bit. So the idea um, here is, indeed, it does that. The law of, of God in Deuteronomy 19 helps prevent slander. We don't slander our neighbor because we know that um, if, if we found guilty of that, then it's, it's a harm to ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, the deception, the lie here just isn't good. And so this is, the goal is to eliminate that possibility. You need two witnesses or three witnesses. 
to to make a charge stick against someone so that they can't simply be plotted against by one person who despises them. Verse 29, then, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Again, the idea of, of how we use our speech, as we had in verse 26, but a, a slightly different flavor here. This is the matter of, of vengeance, which is a theme that we've seen many times in the book of Proverbs. How does Solomon talk about it here, Pastor Andrews? Vengeance is not ours. And don't say this. Don't pay back. And it's the language Solomon is giving to us, and it fits so well with what we see in the rest of God's Word, whether it's the very next chapter in Proverbs, as you'll hear uh, the idea in chapter 25 that um, we are to love and serve even our enemies. Um, the whole burning coal thing will come up there. Or if it's you know, going to Romans chapter 12 and, and reading God saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, such a common, uh, common theme in the scriptures that God is the one who takes vengeance, not us. Uh, what instead he has given us to do is simply to love and care for our neighbor. Uh, and we would even go as far as to say that we forgive our neighbor even if they don't deserve it, because that's what Christ has already done for us. How does how does the command that's there in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, how does that fit into a verse like Proverbs twenty four twenty nine? That's kind of where I was going with the last verse that we had, this idea that the Old Testament law works as a curb. Um, so you've got two things in play with the eye for an eye. The first is that it curbs the sinner's behavior. If I know, you know, I'm mad at you and I want to hurt you and I decide to attack you in my mind before I've actually done it, the law speaks to me and hits me and says, wait a second, if I accidentally break Tim's arm as I'm, you know, fighting against him, the punishment's going to be my arm gets broken. Do I really want that to happen? And so the law works to curb, works to help us to not commit these sins. But the second part of that Old Testament law that we saw is also the idea that there's a curb on revenge. So if, you know, same example, I broke your arm, you don't have the right to come back and kill me for it. You know, it, the, the punishment is kept level. It, it's a, a, actually a thing of mercy coming from the Lord in that sense. But Jesus, Jesus comes and shows us a still more excellent way. Whereas we're not seeking the revenge. We trust that God will take care of that and in the meantime, we simply care for our neighbor. We love them. And if they take advantage of that, if they harm us, they'll have to answer to God for that someday. But in the meantime, I love them, and I want them to be in paradise with me. Got about seven minutes here on the morning, Pastor Andrews, and we've got one more topic. It's a several-verse-long topic. We meet one of our friends in the book of Proverbs, if I can call him that, one of the characters. It's not a narrative, Proverbs, but you do have these recurring figures. One of them is the sluggard, and we meet him again in verse 30. What's the picture that Solomon paints of the sluggard, and what's the wisdom that he intends to impart through this picture? Oh, he's got the, the sluggard or the man lacking sense. Um, I don't know if they're supposed to be the same guy here or not. They seem like maybe two separate, but they're they're lazy. They're not doing the work that they have been given to do. And they they are lacking in the desire to, 
to serve and to and to function. And so what they had, what they had been given to care for, so whether it's a field or a vineyard or what it may be, it's been overrun, overrun by the sins of the curse, as we think of Genesis chapter mm-hmm. 3. The thorns and the thistles didn't exist before, but now here they are. Uh, and because these guys weren't caring for God's creation, and instead were just you know, caring for themselves and whatever their own desires were, what God had given them to care for, now abandoned, and is now overrun by the, the curse of, of the fall of creation. Yeah, that, that's a good point to make there in verse 31, the idea of thorns and nettles as it's translating. These are the things of the curse. These are the things that have come upon because of sin. And here the sin of the sluggard or the man lacking sense is his laziness. The fact that he's not doing what God has given him to do. The the picture that Solomon gives of this this vineyard who you know run by the sluggard and and he's just he doesn't do anything. I mean, the ground is covered with the nettles, everything's overgrown. You you can picture this in your mind, and this is what will happen to a vineyard or a field that's not cared for. This is the picture. And and Solomon says, I, I saw it, I considered it. And and he he then in verses thirty three, I'll just reread it and let you talk about it. Verse 32, then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So Solomon takes the example of the sluggard and says, here's what you need to learn, one who would be wise. Don't don't come into the poverty like the, the sluggard. Take us into those last couple of verses. Yeah, Solomon as he so often said in Ecclesiastes, he would observe something, he saw it, he experienced it, he learned from it. So here's an example for you of kind of the proverb idea. Learn from this. Verse 33. I don't know if there are other threefold examples in the book of Proverbs to build off of, but this particular verse is just repeated from chapter 6. And when you have this threefold statement of the same thing, because I mean, sleep, slumber, and, and folding hands to rest are all going to be the same. I'm not sure at this point we're going to consider it a little. You know, temptation, once you start resting, the temptation is to keep resting. You know, even we joke about it all the time with children, right? When their parents are trying to wake them up in the morning, Mommy, just five more minutes. <laughs> and it's the temptation that we see. It's the temptation that we have. Um, our sinful nature wants to grab onto this. And rest is a good thing. But this is stressing excessive rest to the point where you don't care to the things that God has, has given you to care for, and you, you leave them to neglect, and you leave them to harm. And so poverty comes upon you like a robber. Uh, when I read that first, I remember Jesus saying, you know, in regards to the, the, the last day, it's going to come upon you like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when it's going to happen. Uh, as, you, as you're resting all this time, as you're neglecting your duties, you don't know when it's going to happen, but it's just going to happen. This is the the outcome that's going to hit you at some point or another. This is the end result. Yeah, verse verse thirty three. The I think the idea is that it it just piles up, like you said, like like the child who who wants five more minutes of sleep. All of a sudden, it's piled up upon you. It hits you like a robber. You've slept till noon. But in the case of the sluggard, this is now poverty, not just you've, you've wasted half a day, but you've, you've, you have nothing to support yourself. And then it comes upon you like a robber. It just adds up. This little, little, little adds up into a, a large thing. And again, the, the wisdom that Solomon has is, is 
do the work that God has given you to do. Rest, God has given you rest. This is built into the fabric of creation that we would rest, not only a physical rest, but particularly that rest that he gives to us in his word, in Jesus Christ. But 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 work, don't neglect that gift of God either. Both of those are gifts of God to you. Make use of both of them as he intends. Pastor Andrews, unlike some sections of the book of Proverbs, we've actually covered all the verses that we have for today. We've got about two minutes left here on the morning. As you reflect on these topics that we've looked at, the book of Proverbs as a whole, how does how does a text like this point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, we had a couple of different connections flowing through this particular text, whether it's where we just were in verse 33, um, this idea of set to resting. You know, the Sabbath is, is actually really a matter of trust. Can I trust that God who created me, if I take a day off, can keep things going for me? And the answer to that is obviously when we actually think about it that way, yes, of course he can keep things going, he can care for me. And the greatest way he cares for us, the most restful thing in all of creation, is when God takes away that sin that is the great burden upon our soul. And he's done that for us in Jesus on the cross. So that's why the connection between the physical and the spiritual exists with Sabbath. Is there's nothing more restful than forgiveness and life that Jesus gives to us. You know, so we see it there. We saw it um, back in, in the beginning as well, where we talked about in verse 25, this idea of, of having delight and a good blessing will come upon us. And that points us to Jesus, to his victory on Good Friday and, and the breaking forth tomb on Easter morning. There is there is no better blessing that will come upon the Christian that we get to live with Christ in paradise. And that, that promise is for you. And as we talked about the house, it is for you and for your house. It is for you and for your children uh, who come after you. So yeah, lots of, of little connections that we can make in, in a text like this. There were so many different ways that we could go to the New Testament and see Christ and see Christ for us um, as we are then called, because Christ has first loved us, we are now called to love one another. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Proverbs 24, verses 23 through 34. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.